Okay, we're going to discuss the Isra al-Kos today, the prohibition against litigating in secular court. This is a very serious prohibition. There are two aspects to the prohibition. One aspect is the prohibition itself. Under what circumstances is one prohibited to appear in secular court, to litigate in a secular court? And uh, what are the parameters of the types of uh, cases where uh, one uh, would be subject to this prohibition? And uh, the second uh, part of the discussion is what are the exceptions? Uh, under what circumstances do we allow a heterocos? When would it be permissible uh, based on perhaps the refusal of the other party uh, to litigate in Besden uh, for uh, the other litigant to bring the case or to have the case argued in a secular court. So we're going to discuss both of the aspects of uh, this issue. It's halakha Many of the poskim over the years have bemoaned the fact uh, that uh, there are many people out there who don't seem to be aware uh, of the prohibition or sufficiently sensitive to this prohibition. The people will be meticulous about other aspects of observance, whether it's kashris, whether it's shmir shabbos, but somehow if they have a commercial dispute with somebody, or even you have a couple that gets uh, divorced and uh, they need uh, to uh, resolve their monetary issues or the issues relating to their children, many people don't even think about going to Besdin and uh, they just uh, turn to their lawyers and the lawyers say, well, if you have to litigate, we're going to litigate in the secular court, and people don't realize that it's a giant prohibition. The Mishnah Bura notes uh, the problem, and uh, apparently this was uh, an issue uh, for the Yom Narayim, that there would sometimes be people who were very good shluchet sibo, they were good chazanim anyway, they had good voices, knew the nusach, and they wanted to daven, or maybe there was a havamin of them davening, for the Yom Narayim, and uh, the Mishabura says that you need somebody who's not only Merutzala Kahal, but somebody who you have a, a good feeling about placing them as your representative in front of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. If somebody just violates uh, this uh, tremendous Isser of going to secular courts, and uh, even though they have other virtues maybe in their life, this is such a severe prohibition. And it is uh, such a chilol Hashem, it's such a desecration of God's name. You can't possibly allow such a person to daven for the Yamud, even if the person just doesn't know better. It's just considered to be a disgraceful uh, representation of uh, the Sibor uh, for such a person to uh, to be their uh, their major shliach Sibor whom they put out at this uh, awesome moment in time. Uh, so where does the so where's the prohibition come from? Fundamentally, it appears to be an Isidar Isa. It's a Pasuk at the beginning of Parshish Mishpatim, Be'ela Mishpatim Asher Tasim Lefnehem. It speaks about the ordinances that you're going to place in front of them. Who's the them we're talking about? We're speaking about the Dayanim. We're speaking about all of the cases that are described, Parshish Mishpatim and so forth, the various uh, Dayanim uh, who are supposed to adjudicate and litigate uh, cases of monetary disputes between Jews. You're supposed to present all of these Mishpatim, all of these cases, Lefnehem, in front of the Jewish judges, below Lefnehakum and in front of the non-Jewish judges. Uh, this is found in the Gemara, in Gittin and Peiches Amid Beis, as well as uh, many other places, the Midrashe Halacha. Uh, the Tashbeitz writes in Chelakal of Simen Kuftzari Hei that uh, this appears on its face to be an Isser Daraisa, a Lababa Michlal Essay. Others argue that since the Ramam and the Smag, 
in their compilation of mitzvos don't explicitly mention uh, this uh, prohibition uh, as uh, coming from the Torah. Then maybe it's an asmachta, maybe it's uh, a drabanan that just has a very strong foundation in the Torah. Even according to that opinion, it's clearly ratzon Hashem. It's clearly, once you have an asmachta, you have something which is clearly recorded, uh, you have a hint of it, or at least the, um, uh, the um, major source of reference uh, found in the Torah, even if it's not viewed as a deraisa, uh, it has a, a higher level in terms of our understanding that this is what a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants from us. However, uh, the Pashtus is, uh, and I think that the preponderance of Postkim come to the conclusion, that this is an Issa Daraisa, especially when you consider the reasons for this prohibition that are articulated by the Rishonim. Uh, so you have Rashi and you have the Ramam. Rashi says in his commentary to the Torah that the reason for the prohibition is uh, that you don't want uh, to give uh, any kind of respect uh, to our deference uh, to uh, the uh, idolaters and uh, to their faith systems, uh, and uh, by going to their courts, uh, you're honoring them, and uh, you are uh, blaspheming Kaddish Baruch Hu on some level. It's considered your mechayif and megadif in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that you're, it's as if you're saying that the divine system of justice that was enacted uh, and given to us by a Kaddish Baruch Hu isn't good enough that we have to turn to some foreign system of law. The Ramam says the reason for the prohibition is that He says that a person who goes there, the Ramam is the one who actually uses the Lashon, You're blaspheming and you are casting your hand against the, the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, that uh, you are rejecting and repudiating the Torah of Moshe if you go and you turn to the Torah of uh, the idolaters of the other nations of the world. So what if the other nation is not an idolatry? What if it's a democracy, like in the United States? There's a separation between religion and state. You're not turning to a different religion, per se. So Tashbeitz, in the very same tshuva, in which he speaks about this being an Isidoraisa, says when Rashi says uh, that you're not supposed that it's a form of being miyakir alilim, it's a form of uh, giving respect and reverence uh, to idolatries. It's not only idolatries, it means any kind of foreign justice system other than the Torah. There's a cryptic comment in the Sefer Klechemda on the Torah, which he uh, writes in passing after discussing the issue of the the issue of the Yisra Arkos at uh, some length, he says, of course, this is all talking about the places where uh, they engage in outright idolatry, like Japan uh, or China, and uh, people looking at the Sefer wonder, where in the world did that come from? It's obviously a comment that was thrown in for the censors. Uh, the uh, simple uh, understanding, and I don't think the Klei Chemda was disputing this, is uh, that uh, any kind of foreign uh, acceptance of any foreign legal system is essentially a slap in the face, if you will, uh, to uh, the uh, authority and uh, to the sanctity of uh, the Torah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has, uh, has given us. This prohibition applies between Jews. So anytime that there is any type of a lawsuit, if there's a monetary case, it doesn't matter whether it is a commercial case, it doesn't matter whether it's a matrimonial case, 
uh, it uh, doesn't matter uh, if it is uh, a, a small claims case. Uh, whatever is the nature of the dispute, if it's between two Jews, there's a prohibition for one Jew to take the other Jew to a secular courts. Now, this does not apply, as the Tzitz Eliezer points out in Chelek Yates Tshuva Nun Beis of his Tshuvas, the Tzitz Eliezer points out this does not apply to criminal matters, because if there's a criminal matter, let's say there's a child molester who's running loose, so then the claim against the child molester is not a claim of Ruvain versus Shimon. It's a claim of the government. The government has uh, the responsibility to enact law and order, to make sure that its criminal laws are carried out. Anytime that there is a criminal case, uh, the plaintiff, the one who's bringing the criminal case, is really the government. The government is, uh, that's why you have the district attorney who prosecutes the case. It's not a personal attorney on behalf of the plaintiff. It's the government that prosecutes the case. Every single government is entrusted and authorized to enact a criminal justice system in order to preserve law and order. So if there is somebody running loose who is a threat to the community, like, for example, a child molester, so there's no isser or kaos per se um, with respect to reporting such a person to criminal authorities. That raises a different question, which is one of misira. Uh, the one is one allowed to hand over to the government, so to speak, uh, the subject of their prosecution. And that's a discussion in Choshim Mishpat, Simon Shin Peiches, under what circumstances is it appropriate to hand uh, somebody over. Uh, the Gemara in Baba Metzia talks about having Hormina de Malka. If somebody is um, a, um, uh, an authorized official of the government that they're supposed to uh, prosecute criminals like you're a district attorney, so then you have a responsibility. The Gemara criticizes like Rabbi Shmo ben Elisha who took such a post, um, but where it says there were those who criticized him, Rabbi Shua ben Korka for taking such a post, that like he came under um, a criticism. Um, uh, but uh, the uh, Gemara nonetheless uh, indicates that it wasn't that they were necessarily committing prohibitions, just that if uh, they weren't necessarily um, required to assume such a position, maybe it's best to avoid it, uh, as the Midas uh, Hasidus, as the Ritva uh, indicates, uh, but uh, that would be a legitimate position. And uh, the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Shin Peiches goes further to say that if somebody is a menace to society, so then of course it's appropriate and it's the right thing to do, and one should hand over such a person to uh, the authorities. Being a mandated reporter would presumably also fall under the category of permanent demalka. Yes? In the cases that a, a regular non Jew is a criminal, and then the Jews, a Jew is handing him over to the the government? We're talking about a case where you have a Jewish criminal. We're talking here about Jews, talking about Jewish criminals, right. Okay. Obviously, the non-Jews, they have a mitzvah of dinim. Uh, it's one of the Zion mitzvahs b'nei noach, and uh, therefore, they are obligated to abide by whatever court system or system of law they put into place. It's legitimate as far as they're concerned, just we're not supposed to turn to their justice system. But there is a distinction between civil law and criminal law, so that's just an important point uh, to make off the bat. Yes? What about, like, theft, which is criminal and 
So with respect to any kind of criminal prosecution, that would be subject to laws of misira. So if the person's a public menace, so you know, then it would be appropriate. Somebody um, is afraid for their life, so then it would be you know, appropriate to hand over to the criminal authorities. Um, if somebody needs to you know, save themselves from an imminent threat, and the only way is to have the authorities you know, involved, because um, in Yad, uh, in Koch, um, um, uh, Yisrael Takifa, because we don't, you know, have the power to uh, in, to impose, say, orders of protection and things of that variety. So then it could be legitimate under any of those circumstances. But if we're dealing with um, a situation where a person's not a menace, where there isn't uh, an immediate uh, threat, where a person doesn't need to save themselves from a um, from an act of burglary at this moment in time, so then you get into discussions among the postkim as to whether that would be a problem of misira. But certainly, if it's just a civil suit where one person says that I think Ruvain swindled me out of money and I want to be able to recover the money from Ruvain if it doesn't automatically implicate criminal issues and it's just a civil litigation that we're talking about. So that's something that really should take place in Besden. Uh, if it's a type of situation where there is not a problem of Mesira, some authorities say that nowadays there's still a problem of Mesira unless you have any of the exceptions to the rule, such as a uh, threat of physical harm, somebody who is uh, trying to protect themselves from imminent loss and this is the only way to do it, or a person's a public menace. But if you don't have those exceptions, you still have Mesira considerations with handing over a Jewish criminal to the authorities nowadays if you're not otherwise a mandated report- reporter to do so. Uh, and other, um, so for example, Rav Ezra Basri is of that opinion, appears from Moshe uh, Feinstein's Chuva cities of that opinion, that sits Eliezer um, following a comment made by the Yorach HaShulchan, um, it seems to be of the opinion that if you have a government which is basically a just government uh, that uh, does not unduly discriminate between Jews and non-Jews and which, which has a just system of laws, uh, then in such a case maybe there isn't even a prohibition of Mesira altogether. That's a hotly disputed topic amongst the various postkims. Some say that, well, maybe there's a problem of Mesira uh, even if there's a just criminal system, if the jails are places which uh, um, impose what you know might const- where might be considered from our perspective cruel and uh, an unusual punishment where the punishment of being in a jail setting doesn't uh, meet the the crime uh, so to speak in terms of uh, the nisyanos uh, the uh, types of abuses that a person will have to uh, will have to suffer. Certainly, one is not allowed to harbor a criminal. This is only a question with respect to, to the right to hand over a criminal to uh, the uh, justice um, uh, authorities uh, when one does not otherwise have a, a civil hormon and demalka obligation to do so. Uh, but uh, leaving you know all of that uh, leaving all of that aside, if you do have a civil suit that could be bifurcated from the criminal suit, where it's only a question of recovering damages and recovering money. So then, apipashtus, according to the simple understanding, the Isser Arkos would be applicable, the prohibition of going to civil courts, um, taking another Jew to civil courts, would be pro- applicable and one should, would have to adjudicate that dispute in front of a base then. If it's a close call, then one has to go to the Bezdin and let the Bezdin make the determination as to whether this is a case that they can handle or whether this is a case which is so inextricably intertwined with the criminal aspect of the case that the only way
way that it could be properly handled would be in a criminal court. I've had that situation with various fraud types of cases over the years, but there are certain fraud cases where the parties were not interested in going through the criminal justice system. They were interested in working things out through civil um, litigation. I've had cases where the Attorney General's office was involved, in which everybody agreed um, that it would only be a civil suit and that it would be litigated in front of the bid. The best, and I, I, I had a case that I, I dealt with once um, in which uh, there was a racketeering case where there was a claim for treble damages, which means that under the racketeering laws, you're entitled uh, to three times the amount of damage that was caused. There was a bank that claimed that they had been embezzled out of $35 million. So it was a $105 million case, uh, and, it came, uh, and it came to the Besden because uh, the parties were not interested in pursuing uh, criminal remedies, but only civil remedies. So even though the, the, it was a, a fraud statute, it was a racketeering statute. Nonetheless, it was capable of being handled in a civil context, so we handled it in Besden. Okay, so let's um, move on. Uh, that uh, the other uh, thing about uh, the prohibition of, uh, of, of uh, adjudicating uh, cases in front of the civil court is that they have to be actual cases. They have to be litigations. If it's just some sort of a bureaucratic or for formal manner, um, where, like the Sam Sofia writes, uh, that uh, the uh, person wants to register in the secular courts uh, that uh, a certain edus, that uh, there's, um, they made a certain loan that somebody owes them money, and the expectation and the hope is that the person is eventually going to pay them, but they don't know if when push comes to shove at the moment of reckoning whether they're actually going to uh, get paid, and they don't know exactly where they're going to have to uh, prosecute or where they're going to have to litigate this claim uh, because maybe the other party won't agree to go to Besden, or they allow to just record as a matter of record-keeping in the civil courts uh, that uh, there is a testimony that this loan took place. Sam Sofa says that's a, just a recordation of testimony. You're putting, making a record, like you buy real property, and uh, you record the property in the land registry book of deeds of the county in which you live. That's not considered to be our coast. That's not considered to be going to court because the prohibition of going to court is litigating in front of the court. You're just registering something in the court. That's not a problem. So Ramosha Feinstein writes similarly that if you have a family where somebody died and left the will and nobody's contesting the will, nobody is litigating and saying, oh, it's not a halakhically valid will or I think that I'm entitled to more, this one's entitled to less. Nobody's registering any claim. You just want to be able to probate the will and you need to go to the court in order to probate the will to make sure that everybody receives what they're supposed to receive and there's no contest with respect to the wills, no litigation. So there's no Issa going to the courts under that circumstance. Rabbi Bleich writes for, as well along these lines, let's say you have a divorce case. So a couple that gets divorced, as we mentioned, they're supposed to litigate, if they need to litigate their disputes, we hope that they don't need to litigate their disputes. They'll have a nice mediator uh, that will patch things up so they'll have shalom bayis. That would be the best thing. But if for whatever reason the marriage can't be patched up, it's abusive, There's just or there's just no way that uh, we're able to save the marriage. It does happen, unfortunately, from time to time. So you could still use a mediator. You could use uh, somebody who 
just sits down and tries to bring the parties to a mutual agreement. That person doesn't even have to be a Bezdin functionary. It could be their next door neighbor. It could even be a lawyer as long as it's uh, being done in a non-court type of uh, setting. Uh, that uh, they are engaged in uh, this process of trying to come to an agreement together. So that certainly would be, uh, would be the best thing um, for them to do. But let's say that um, they have to litigate. So if they have to litigate because they're just not able to reach an agreement, either through a mediator, the lawyers, they can use lawyers to negotiate. They're not going to court. The lawyers are just negotiating the terms of the divorce, what to do with the children, the parenting arrangements, uh, the custody arrangements, the alimony arrangements, maintenance arrangements, whatever else. They can you know, work it all out uh, with, um, with the lawyers as long as everybody's you know, comfortable with the, uh, with the arrangement and with the resolution at the end. Uh, but if they have to litigate, they can only, they're only allowed to litigate in front of a, um, in front of a bezin. If it has to be in front of a court, it has to be in front of a rabbinical court and not in front of a civil court. But let's say that, yes, uh, I'm sorry? So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. The answer is, well, the, sh- the answer is yes. A judge can mediate uh, as long as if it's like a next door neighbor and uh, you're staying out of a court uh, setting. Uh, it's like a retired judge. You can use that, especially if the parties themselves are coming to an agreement and it's not a litigation. The question is, can you use a judge as an arbitrator? Let's say they say, okay, we're not going to go to any official court. We'll go to an arbitration tribunal. Most Bate Din, from a secular court perspective, operate as an arbitration tribunal. What's the difference between a mediator and an arbitrator? A mediator is somebody who just tries to enable the parties to reach an agreement. An arbitrator is someone who says, look, you can't reach an agreement, so I'm going to, uh, ish, I'm going to impose a decision upon you. What makes that binding? The parties sign an arbitration agreement that they'll abide by the decision of the arbitrator. It's not a court. Just any person can be an arbitrator. The authority that a Besden has in the United States of America today is through the arbitration statutes of various states that say the parties are allowed to submit their disputes to an arbitrator. So they sign a document, an arbitration agreement. We call it a shtabi ruin, but it's an arbitration agreement in which, uh, from a secular law perspective, that says that we agree to have our dispute um, heard and decided by a rabbinical court. They could fill in, instead of rabbinical court, they could fill in our next door neighbor, or they could fill in, have it decided by the American Arbitration Association. And then the decision that's handed down by the rabbinical court or by any arbitrator is a binding in a court of law, just like any decision that would be handed down by a regular court of law. And that's how Batizid, or rabbinical thoughts, courts have their authority here in the, um, here in the United States. Uh, so let's say that instead of going to a rabbinical court, they said, I have a good way to avoid the Israel coast. We won't go to a civil court, but we're not going to go to a Bezdin either. We'll just go to our next door neighbor. So this is a whole discussion in the, in the Shach as to whether this is uh, considered to uh, be legitimate or not. And the bottom line, you find this in the Yorach HaShokhan. Rabbi Bleich has an article about this called Pshar B'Fnei Nochrim. Many people discuss this. The bottom line seems to be that, yes, you can go even go to a non-Jewish arbitrator, provided, and it's really based on a Rabbi Kiva Eger at the beginning of Choshe Mishpat, who talks about like a commercial arbitration association. You have two people 
who are in a commercial business and one person wanted to go to Bezdin and the other person says, no, I want to go in front of the commercial arbitrators like they're in the diamond business and there's an official arbitration tribunal of the diamond uh, district, or, you know, that would probably be Jewish, but if it would be, you know, any, you know, any other business as well, like the American Architects, you know, Association, there's an official arbitration board and uh, the defendant says, we're both architects and uh, therefore uh, our decision should be decided according to the norms and customs and practices of the Architect Association and therefore I only want our arbitrators to decide the case. So Rabbi Kiva Eger, based on Amahashach, says uh, that this is perfectly legitimate. But says uh, the Yarech uh, HaShulchan, this is only when the arbitration board is deciding the case according to their customs and practices so that they're not taking upon themselves a different competing legal system to one of the Torah. They're just saying, okay, we're going to follow our customs and practices. That's not considered to be because you're not in front of the court. It's not considered to be because you're not taking upon yourself a foreign legal system. But if the nature of this arbitrator was such that this arbitrator only decides cases in accordance with the strict legalities of secular law and that this is what they are charged to do. Everybody knows that you know you go to this arbitrator, they're going to decide the case according to secular law. It doesn't matter if they're not actually in the courtroom. Um, that would still be an iser or kos, that would still be a prohibition because it's still meirim yad neged Torah Moshe Rabbeinu. It's still raising your hand against Torah Moshe by accepting upon yourself a different legal system by virtue of going to this type of an arbitrator. The flip side of the equation, I'm going to take all the questions in a moment. The flip side of the equation is, let's say that you have a situation where it's going to be decided by a non-Jewish arbitrator in accordance with just common sense or customs and practices, but um, uh, uh, which we said is not Meirim Yad on the one hand, but the arbitrator is an official functionary of a court system. This often happens in small claims cases where somebody takes uh, somebody to small claims courts, they say, you're not going to have a regular court procedure for proceeding. It's on like a $5,000 claim, whatever it is. So you have the option. You can go downstairs in the court. I know, I, I know this because somebody once took our Bezdin to small claims court. The chutzpah take our Bezdin to small claims court. as a husband in a divorce case who didn't like the outcome of the decision. We did the get. Uh, that's our usual practice. We say we don't want the get to be used as a weapon, so we'll do the get first if everyone agrees to getting divorced anyway. So we did the get first. And then we adjudicated the monetary aspects of the case, and the case was decided, and the husband didn't like the way the case was decided. Uh, so he decided it's cheaper rather than to appeal in a regular court, which would presumably be a very expensive proposition, just cheaper to go to small claims court. So he went to small claims court basically saying that because the case was wrongfully decided in his opinion, he wanted his Besden fees back. So he was just suing for the Besden fees. So it was a small claims court, and one of the heterim, one of the dispensations for going to secular court is if you're the defendant, the plaintiff takes you to secular court, so then you have no choice but to go. You're an honors, basically. You're going against your will. You're not committing the or a cause, it's already been committed by the other person taking you, so then you could go to secular court. So I went to secular court um, just uh, to represent uh, the Bezdin in the case, and we went in front of an arbitrator, and uh, the arbitrator was just trying to decide the case according to you know,
know, make a deal, uh, not based on any kind of set of laws or anything like that. It was just, you know, based on pure settlement. So he said, ah, whatever the person was asking for, he wants, you know, $2,000, we just split the baby in half. He saw that somewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, just give him $1,000 and, you know, you'll, you'll make peace. And I said, no, I can't do that because uh, there's a principle over here in terms of the sanctity and the respect for a rabbinical court. A person, once they accept our jurisdiction, they can't disrespect our decisions. I am just not authorized to compromise at all when it comes uh, to uh, the honor uh, of the Torah. Um, and I hope that the arbitrator would understand. So I won the case, thank God. My car that I had parked near the courthouse in the Bronx got towed away, a separate story, but I won that case too. I actually won that case too um, because it turned out that the sign had been obscured by branches of a tree or something and I took pictures. So everything worked out, you know, in the end. Um, uh, but, uh, but let's say you have that type of situation in small claims court. You're the person, you're the plaintiff. You want to take another Jew to small claims court. And you say, but the arbitrator is just going to be deciding according to principles of uh, fairness and common sense. He's not going to be adopting the secular law system. So the Shulchan Aruch, Nechol Shemishbat, Simon Samaches, says that's also prohibited. Why is that prohibited? Because you may not have the Meriam Yad Negatos Moshe Rabbeinu part of the equation, but you have the Miyaka Shemalilim part of the equation, because since you're going to an official secular court entity. You have to go into the courthouse and you have to appear before the court-appointed arbitrator, so therefore that still is a violation of Miyaka Shemalilim. So even a pshara says the Shulchan Aruch, in front of a secular court is um, going to be prohibited. Okay, now I saw two of you had your hands up. Yes? Um, so let's say, so let's give, oh, the guy who signed that he said he was going to use you as his arbitrators, so that's he says, I don't want to pay. Can you guys not take him to court? I don't understand. The per, which person doesn't want to pay? The guy who... The person who lost the case in Besden? Yeah. So if the person lost the case in Besden, let's say that Reuven takes Shimon to Besden, which is the proper thing to do. And now Shimon loses his case and he doesn't want to pay. So the husband in this case... He tried to, you know, appeal our decision in small claims court and, you know, couldn't, couldn't appeal it, but he just doesn't fork over the money. So what can the wife do at this point in time? The Besden doesn't have enforcement power when it comes to carrying out his decisions. We can't, you know, marshal, you know, a person's um, bank account or, you know, garnish, you know, their wages or foreclose on their assets. Only the sheriff's department has the ability to do that. So can the wife, in this case, really you're asking, the one who's the victorious party, can the victorious party go to court to enforce the Besden's decision. This is a whole discussion in the post game, but all the post can pretty much agree that it is permitted for the winning party to enforce the Besden decision because that is simply utilizing the secular court in the capacity as an agent of the Besden, and that's not disrespecting the Besden system. If anything, that's a fulfillment on some level of a different Pasuk in the Torah. Can anyone guess which Pasuk? There is an, a mitzvah to appoint a bebati din. There's a mitzvah to appoint shoftim, but you also have to appoint shoftim. You need the police officers to carry out the bezin's decision. It's an explicit mishnah towards the end of Masechus Gittin. says a bezin issues a ruling, for example, that a husband is required to give his wife a get, and then if she goes to the secular court and the secular court says, um, uh, you better give, you know, you, uh, says to the husband, you better give your wife a get or you're in trouble, you've got to do what the Jewish court is doing, so that's a perfectly valid get. Um, so from this, we see that there is, uh, this is uh, quoted by the Sefer Trumos as a, uh, as a source 
uh, for the notion that it's perfectly legitimate to utilize the secular courts as an enforcement mechanism for the Bezdin decision. The only diun among the authorities is whether do you need Vashus of the Bezdin before going to the secular court to do it. Most contemporary authorities, the Shlomo Klug and the Maharsham, others say, what do you mean Vashus Bezdin? Of course the Bezdin wants you to do it. That's, you know, uh, embedded in the decision that the Bezdin is, is issuing a decision. The Bezdin has a responsibility to issue a decision that's going to be enforceable. This is the only way for the decision. That's why we have the parties sign arbitration agreements. Otherwise, as far as the Bezdin authority is concerned, in many cases, the Bezdin could be given authority to decide the case, but just by parties doing a Kenyan Sudo. You know, you just take a pen or a handkerchief and lift it up in the air and thereby evince your um, commitment to abide by the decision of the Bezdin. Halakhically, that uh, might be perfectly fine, but from a secular law perspective, that's not going to carry any weight and then the decision won't be enforceable. So the Neostesius, one of the Shail Suchus, Neostesia, many others say this as well, but he was one of the first to put this in writing, so people quote him all the time about this. The Neos Desha says that if a party appears before the Bezdin and says, I'll abide by your decision and I agree to go to Bezdin, but I just refuse to sign an arbitration agreement uh, so that the decision won't be enforceable, so it's perfectly legitimate for the Bezdin to issue a seruv, to issue an order of recalcitrance against such a party, because they're not really agreeing to litigate in front of the Bezdin. To agree to litigate in front of the Bezdin means that you agree that you're going to litigate in such a way that you're going to empower the Bezdin as much as possible to issue an enforceable decision and if that means signing an arbitration agreement then you would be obligated to sign an arbitration agreement and so too it's presumed uh, that the Bezdin wants uh, the case uh, to be enforced in secular, in, in secular court and all the Batidin which I've served I've served as the director of the Bezdin of America I currently serve uh, as a biographical uh, note uh, as uh, the Abezdin as the chief rabbinical judge of the Chicago Rabbinical Council the Bezdin of the Chicago Rabbinical Council, um, in all of those in Din, we include in our arbitration agreement, as well as our published rules and procedures, that the parties have the right to enforce our decisions in any court of competent jurisdiction so that you know they can enforce the provisions of our PSAC. I remember one case where we issued a PSAC for $1.5 million, something like that, against one of the parties. It was a very interesting case. The plaintiff had brought a case against a certain defendant, a commercial case. Defendants signed the arbitration agreement, um, but then changed their mind because they realized that even though there was a possibility they could win, it's also a possibility they could lose. So they called me up and they said, you know, maybe, you know, we can negotiate, whatever. We won't go into that. But um, I say we don't negotiate, you know, in terms of uh, the best thing. You have to, um, you have to show up. And uh, the Bezdin issued a default decision against the person because they refused to show up. And the court actually, even though it was a decision for over a million dollars, the court said there was a validly signed arbitration agreement to appear before the Bezdin. The arbitration rules say if you don't show up, the Bezdin can issue a default decision against you. And that's what happened in that particular case. Um, so this was all incorporated in our rules. So then there's not even a question mark that, of course, under those circumstances, the person can go to secular court to enforce uh, the decision if there's a question as to whether they need the permission of the Bezdin. So it's clear in such a case uh, that, um, that they have the permission of the, um, of the Bezdin. You also had a question? Yeah, uh, this is a general question. The, to what degree real world do the secular courts entertain the, uh, the records of the Bezdin? I mean, how... I mean, how, what is the... Where the... Where the, where the where halakha 
part when a local parts with secular law, and there's a in total. Now, do you want to go to the secular court to enforce the decision of the basin? What happens if the so generally speaking, the uh, secular court is perfectly fine with enforcing something as long, the, even if it is yeah, in accordance with law. a different system of law, as long as the parties have explicitly accepted upon themselves that different system of law, and the outcome is not one that would shock the conscience. So if you had a, uh, if you had a case, a religious court, that would order that Louvain, you know, say John didn't pay Tom, uh, you know, a thousand dollars that he owed him, and therefore Tom has the right to chop off John's arm, so they wouldn't enforce that decision because they would say that it shocks the conscience. Uh, but if it's something that is within what they view as the realm of reasonable, even though it's not consistent, with what the secular law outcome would have been, they would generally enforce it. Now, there are a couple of exceptions and what, what we call public policy exceptions, where they say that there's such a strong public policy with respect to certain things that they will not allow any kind of a divergence um, from the, uh, the system of law that is uh, enacted in and which is memorialized in the civil law statutes uh, in terms of an arbitration decision. And most of the time, what that means is that this is simply a manifestation of what we call Dina de Malchus de Dina. What's Dina de Malchus de Dina? It means the law of the, law of the land is the law. It's a whole separate discussion, um, which is a very complicated and lengthy discussion. What are the parameters of Dina de Malchus de Dina? But many post-gim, if you look at the way it's articulated, even in the Rishonim, the way it's articulated by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, as well, even the Beis Yosef, when the Beis Yosef talks about Dina de Malchus de Dina, they speak about what are the types of economic laws, of monetary laws, that the Malchus is Makbid Aleim. The, the Malchus really cares very deeply about that if two people would decide on their own that they're going to conduct their affairs in a different way from the laws which are on the books, the kingdom or the government would say, we're not going to allow you to do that or we're going to declare whatever you did null and void. So under those circumstances, it's very possible that this would come under the ambit of what the Ramah describes in Simon Shin Samach Tes and Kosh Mishpat as the scope of Dina Damachus Adina being any kind of economic regulation of broad applicability, which is Litakanis B'nai Medina, which was enacted because it was felt that all of the citizens of a country have to be in lockstep with each other in order for a particular economic law to work properly. So, for example, Rav Moshe discusses this in a bankruptcy context, that you can't fiddle around with the priority order of which creditors can collect first. You can't have like a preference deal between the bankruptcy debtor and one Jewish creditor to say, oh, I'll pay you first, even though you're really 20th in line, because that's going to affect the entire bankruptcy system that also affects lots of creditors who may not be Jewish altogether, and it's also going to just erode um, the uh, stability of bankruptcy law, which could have an adverse consequence for the economy as a whole. But most types of disputes, whether they're partnership disputes, whether they're neighbor disputes, whether they're landlord-tenant disputes, most
most types of disputes, even um, disputes uh, that have to do with loan transactions, um, real estate transactions, most disputes uh, are not in this category. Most disputes, if two parties say we're going to settle our differences in a way which is not consistent with secular law, which is consistent with just some deal that we make with each other, could have, could have nothing to do with any law or that's going to be consistent with Jewish law, uh, then as long as it doesn't shock the conscience from the government's or the court's perspective, uh, that would be perfectly legitimate in their eyes and uh, they would be prepared to enforce those decisions. What happens if, if, if you're a plaintiff in a class action suit, if the Jew and Jews and Gentiles are joint plaintiffs in a class action suit? Is that permitted? So if it is a type of suit, let's say where you can't adjudicate it in Besden because many of the parties are non-Jews. Right. And the non-Jews don't have an obligation to go to Besden. So you can say if it's impossible for the case to be, again, bifurcated or um, isolated right. from the class action suit, and this is the only way the one's going to be able to effect a remedy, obviously you have to ask a Shaila, uh, and one would have to go to the Besden to receive permission under those circumstances to make sure that it satisfied these criteria. But if the best and determines that it satisfies this criteria, then the best and in such a case would really have to pass it because it's very case-by-case sensitive because sometimes you might be able to bifurcate a certain aspect of the suit that this person would be able to bring in, uh, in best in, even though everybody else is in civil court. The best would have to determine that this was really the type of case in which the only way in which the person would be able to receive a remedy would be if they joined together with everybody else and that the case was otherwise in terms of the other parties legitimate in civil court. So all of that would have to be weighed and ascertained by the Besden. There are those who say the Besden also has to weigh and ascertain whether under those circumstances the person would have, arguably at least, a viable taina, a viable claim according to Jewish law in order to authorize them to go to the civil courts as well. Um, so in case of, let's say, a negligence case, Jew against Jew, the plaintiff the, uh, the the plaintiff insists on a jury trial. He has no grounds to stand on. He has to go to the basement. If it's a negligence case, uh, any kind of negligence right. case, it's a monetary case, and yeah, a person so obviously is supposed to go to best in right. the first instance. In other words, he, he says to himself, I know I'd win in a jury trial. Well, good. Right, you can't pick and choose. You don't have that ability. And that, you know, brings us really to the next, you know, part of the discussion, which is since this really is a matter of a ritual prohibition from the standpoint of Torah law, so there are all kinds of ramifications. You know, when it comes to most monetary laws, like, for example, the laws of Shomrim, the laws of uh, Baileys and uh, people who are entrusted to watch uh, objects, uh, so then we have uh, we have halakos about if a shomer chinam stipulates that they'll have the liability of a shomer sacher, the shomer sacher stipulates that they'll have the liability of a shomer chinam. They generally have the ability to do so. That's a mission above a mitzvah. I think that's Sadi Dalit. The mission and the Gemara discusses that. That's because it's a tanai shemamamon, and we have a general principle called kaim. We hold like Rabbi Yehuda that any tanai which which has to do with monetary matters, people can make whatever kind of deal or conditions they want with each other even if it's not completely consistent with what the default Torah law set of rules would otherwise be. But when it comes to the prohibition of litigating in front of secular courts, so the Ramban writes um, in Parshish Mishpatim uh, that even if both parties stipulate that they agree 
that they're going to waive the prohibition of going to secular court, and they both agree to go to secular court, it's still prohibited because it's not merely a monetary law, it's a ritual law, like keeping Shabbos and not eating kosher. The prohibition of going to secular court is based on being mecharif, it's like blaspheming a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Therefore, it's not something which is in the bailus, which is in the domain of human beings to waive, and therefore it's non-waivable, and if they made such a condition, such a condition would not be, uh, would not be enforceable. It's a whole discussion uh, in the rush, uh, for example, about if people would stipulate in their contract uh, that uh, there's a right. And you find that in many contracts. Many contracts say that the parties stipulate that if there's ever a dispute, it's going to be adjudicated in the courts of New York or something like that. So what do you do with such a stipulation? So he says you have to reinterpret it. And what it means is that the parties mean to say that if one of the parties is going to refuse to go to Besden, so then the other party will have the right uh, to take them to secular court. Because as we're going to see, that is one of the cases where you are allowed to go to secular court if the other party is going to refuse to go to Besden. And not that parties both have the right between themselves to stipulate or to agree that they're going to go to uh, civil court. Uh, really, the halacha is that they're supposed to go to Besden. If one party goes to civil court, so then they're committing an infraction, they're committing a prohibition, and then the other party has no choice, they have no brera, so they have permission under those circumstances to go to secular court as well in many instances. However, uh, it is not pr- pr- the, a- the action itself of going to a secular court that was initiated by the other party was not permitted despite the fact that there's a contractual clause that says that both parties agreed to go to the civil court as opposed to, um, to the Besden. Let's say, though, that we have a case you know, we, we were talking about, you know, the public policy cases. So let me just go through this for a second. We're speaking about divorce cases. This comes up a lot. This comes up a lot that you have, unfortunately, you, have, you know, divorces within the Jewish community. Uh, so sometimes the parties will say, but the uh, secular court system is not going to honor or respect the Besden ruling. So is that really true? So you said, does the Besden have the right to rule according to our own laws as opposed to the secular laws? Generally, we do. But sometimes they have these very strong public policies. As I mentioned, one area where there's a very strong public policy is when it comes to children. A couple gets divorced and there are children. So they'll say, you can make whatever deals you want about how you're going to allocate your monies, your assets between husband and wife. Make whatever deals you want about how much the husband is going to have to pay the wife or the wife will have to pay the husband. Uh, depending on you know who's the main breadwinner in terms of maintenance and alimony, right? Halakha, we have a which is in one direction, but you know the secular law could be in different directions. But they say it doesn't matter. You could you know make the the couple can say we're going to decide everything according to Jewish law, even if Jewish law would be a different outcome than uh, than secular law. No problem. But when it comes to the children, so we have various with the parents patriae. Courts are considered to be the guardians of the children, and we are not going to allow you to waive the rights that we, as the government, award to the children, which means looking out for the best interests of the children and how much money is allocated for them, and looking out for the best interests of the children in terms of the custodial arrangements. So most states will say that as a matter of um, child support, in determining the amount of child support that has to get paid, there's a certain formula that has to be followed. You can sometimes uh, digress from that formula a little bit 
as long as you justify the basis for that uh, digression uh, and you explain why you awarded a little bit more, a little bit less than whatever the statute would otherwise have mandated. But you have to demonstrate how you started off within the framework of the statute, uh, the child support statute, in terms of awarding a child support. So a Bezin in that case um, would not say, oh, go to the civil court. The Bezin would say, you have still have to, the couple still has to litigate in front of the Bezdin, but the Bezdin then has a responsibility uh, to take into account the Dina Damachus Sadina. Since this is a statute that the, the government really is mocked about, really care about, they say we're not going to enforce your decisions unless you respect our child support uh, guidelines. So the Bezdin therefore has to demonstrate that it has respected and it has followed to whatever degree is necessary anyway, and with whatever explanation is necessary for any differences in the decision, they have to incorporate the child support guidelines into the decision. But that doesn't give the parties the right to say, oh, well, since you have to follow the child support guidelines anyway, we're not going to go to the best. And no, that just becomes a part of the parameters of the uh, Bezdin jurisdictional mandate uh, that uh, this aspect of the case, the Bezdin has to look towards secular law in terms of making sure that uh, they properly abide by whatever Dina de Malchusa Dina um, uh, requirements are imposed upon them, not only from the standpoint of secular law, but really from the standpoint of halakha, because halakha says in these cases, the Bezdin has to incorporate Dina de Malchusa Dina, and that still remains a Bezdin determination. But what about in terms of the custodial arrangements. And there, the public policy consideration in many states, such as New York, goes even further. And the public policy uh, considerations say that in the event that a Bezin decides uh, a parenting arrangement or custodial arrangement, and one of the uh, uh, parents uh, disputes the decision of the Bezin, then the other parent can't enforce it. Most of the decisions say it's not actually going to be enforceable, that either parent has the right to dispute the Bezin decision and to have it appealed and to have it relitigated in front of a secular court. So one, so, the, so a person can say, so I don't want to go to Bezin altogether because I'm afraid, because I don't think that the decision of the Bezin is going to be enforceable. And uh, as we said, the uh, halacha is, the Torah requirement is shoftim and shotrim titan lacha, you need to have shoftim, judges, dayonim, but you need to have shotrim, an enforcement mechanism. So what's the enforcement mechanism going to be over here? All of that is certainly a concern, but all that means is that this is an argument to present before the Bezdin. Someone can go in front of the Bezdin and say, you know what, there's a real concern regarding enforceability here, and therefore we are petitioning the Bezdin um, to give uh, rishus, to, to give permission for this aspect of the case uh, to be litigated in front of the secular court. Sometimes the Bezdin will. Sometimes the Bezdin will say, look, we're dealing with Erlich HaYidin over here. We're dealing with uh, people who are earnest in their desire to follow halakha. That's why they're coming to the Bezdin. It's true that technically speaking, one of the parties could contest at the end of the day whatever custodial decision is going to be handed over by the Bezdin. But you know what? Halakhically, you're not allowed to do that. So therefore, we are requiring you to do everything that's in our power to do. You'll sign arbitration agreement. It's true, the arbitration agreement might only be enforceable as far as child support and as far as disposition of assets and marital maintenance and spousal support. Well, those things are concerned, uh, but not necessarily with respect to uh, custody, to child custody and visitation. But nonetheless, um, you're gonna do everything that you can in order to make this uh, binding 
and we're going to work together with the parties, we'll work together with their lawyers to engage in what's called a collaborative arbitration, where everybody collaborates with the understanding that at the end of the day, when the is going to bring in its child uh, therapist, experts, uh, people of that sort, we've heard many such cases in New York, in the Besden here, where we've dealt in, with uh, child uh, custody disputes. We brought in people like Dr. Pelkovitz, uh, for example, people who are very, very knowledgeable and respected by the court system as well to evaluate the children, the fitness of the parents, and determine what are the best parenting arrangements. And then we're going to work together with the parties and their lawyers to take the decision of the Besden to incorporate it into a divorce settlement agreement, which is signed by the parties. We'll take all the provisions of the decision of the Besden, turn it into a divorce settlement agreement, which when signed by the parties is presumptively enforceable in the courts. And then they will turn the Besden decision into an enforceable decision uh, by, um, by, by transforming the Besden decision into a divorce settlement agreement between the parties. I have to tell you that I've sat on maybe, you know, at least a dozen or so, I would think, uh, cases over the years involving here in New York, involving uh, custody issues, and not once has a party sought to, to overturn or relitigate the decision of the best. And because if the best and does a thorough and careful job and uses the same experts that the courts would respect anyway, the parties know uh, that there's not going to be a different outcome if they relitigate it in court. It would just be a waste of money. And we work very carefully together with the attorneys to ensure that the decision be turned into an enforceable divorce settlement agreement between the parties. So therefore, this is something where the parties still have a responsibility to go to the best unless the best and feels uh, that uh, one of the parties, for example, can't really, or both can't really be trusted to uh, turn the decision of the Besden into a divorce settlement agreement, that it will be a waste of everyone's time at the end of the day. So then the Besden has the discretion to say, we're going to allow this to be adjudicated in its civil court. But that's a determination for the Besden to make. I remember that we once were dealing with a very tricky uh, divorce case in New Jersey, and we had issued a number of visitation decisions about what the visitation arrangement should be in terms of how much time the father would spend with the children. And after we had issued a number of different uh, interim uh, decisions, uh, the husband decided that he wasn't so happy uh, with the course of the decisions of the best, and so he went to the court in New Jersey, and he argued that the Besden should be removed from its jurisdiction, or at least that its decision shouldn't be enforceable. And one of his arguments was that this was in the public policy area of child custody, where the courts traditionally do not relinquish their authority to that of the Besden, and uh, therefore uh, all of the decisions should be rendered null and void and would have to be relitigated in front of the courts. And up until that point in time, that was the law. In New Jersey, New Jersey, just like New York, had a law that said that child custody determinations are not subject to the binding uh, uh, arbitration of a Besden or any other arbitration tribunal. Um, but the court looked at how complicated and uh, how uh, incredibly um, um, convoluted uh, this case was and uh, how carefully the Besden had rendered its decisions and said, you know what? 
the Bezdin did a pretty good job over here. We're not taking the jurisdiction away from the Bezdin, and we're not going to follow the precedent in terms of all of the other court cases uh, that have been issued up until now. And then, uh, shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court of New Jersey issued a decision, it's called Forzi versus Forzi, saying, henceforth, uh, we're changing the law, and even uh, child custody determinations can be subject uh, to the rulings of arbitration tribunals. Because they realized, why should they have this headache? If parties are willing to go in front of arbitration tribunals, they have arbitration tribunals that can do a perfectly good job. So, you know, why should they um, subject uh, their uh, completely overburdened court system to these cases unnecessarily? So they actually change the law. So my hope is uh, that uh, they will, when the courts see what a good job, you know, the Bati Din do when it comes to custody uh, cases, uh, certainly within our community, that they will change uh, the law in New York as well. But even though they haven't officially changed the law in New York, I can tell you that I've never seen a case of a child custody determination rendered by our best in any way um, uh, 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 ever uh, overturned or ever even challenged, uh, for that matter, in the, um, in the, secular, court, uh, in the secular court system. Uh, so that's also another very important ramification of understanding the nature of the um, of the prohibition. Let's say you don't have uh, give you you know another ramification. Let's say you don't have qualified dayanim. You don't have rabbis who really know the halacha very very well. So what do you do in that case? Do we say ah? So because we don't have rabbis who are qualified in the halacha, therefore we should just allow the parties to go to a secular court. So the Rashba was asked this, and the Rashba in a um, in a famous uh, in a famous tshuva in the Chelek Beisim and Reish Tzadi of the Tshuva Sarashba responded that if you look in the Gemara in Sanhedrin it speaks about Arkal Shebesuria it speaks about how if you don't have a location where there are qualified Dayanim so you just appoint various people who are people with good practical common sense and um, but you don't have Arkal so you don't have a secular court system you have a board of Jewish communal leaders who are charged with deciding cases that come in front of that Jewish community and if they have any question with respect to you know something which is of an extremely vexing nature that comes in front of them, they can consult with Dayanim in other cities. But it still doesn't give the right to create a secular court framework. It's better to have people who are appointed by the town that you have a uh, you 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 have a uh, not a rabbinical court, but at least you have a Jewishly appointed court of lay people who are doing their best to follow their common sense and to consult when necessary in order to administer law and order without running afoul of the Yisr or Kos. Another ramification is, let's say, you know, the Gemara in Babakama has, um, people are learning Babakama, right? So the Gemara in Babakama uh, has a, a lengthy discussion about what is the scope of the jurisdiction of Bezdin nowadays when we don't have Smuchin anymore. We don't have rabbis who have received their Smicha directly from Moshe Rabbeinu. Our smicha is still a really good smicha here at YU, like the best that you can get, you know, but only Bizman is there, the best that you can get. Really, the ideal smicha is the smicha that goes straight back to Moshe Rabbeinu. That was interrupted at a certain point in time during the days of the Gemara. So if you don't have smukim that have authority directly from Moshe Rabbeinu, so technically um, they don't really have a jurisdiction except for this principle called Shlichu Sayu Ka'abdinan, that we're considered to be the agents in 
time, so to speak, of Koshiku Sayyid, the Kamaika of Dina, were considered to be the agents in time of our predecessors. Just like Gemara has that concept with respect to how do the Dayanim in Babel have authority um, when they don't have Smika, only Dayanim in Eretz Yisrael. Smika, as we say, they're considered to be the Shliku of the Dayanim in Eretz Yisrael. So Tosas has a concept that the Dayanim of today are considered to be Shliku Sayyid, the Kamai of the Dayanim of yesteryear. But not all cases come under the ambit, not all monetary cases come under the scope of Shlichusai. We say it has to be a most of the kiss. It has to be something which happens frequently, like, you know, person causing damage to somebody else's property, like a man bites a dog, that's considered to be, you know, common, but not something which is uncommon, like, you know, animals just, you know, uh, hurting human beings, like a dog biting a man, that's considered to be uncommon. So that would be, um, that would not come under the ambit of Shlikusai, but let's say that somebody had such a case, so could they just say, oh, it doesn't come under the uh, category of Shlikusai, either because it's not common, or because there's no Kisar and Kiss, it's like I have a Knas, I have a penalty case that I'd like to prosecute, I want Cape Bill, I want double damages for theft, um, and the Besden, you know, doesn't have authority, but I can get the double damages, you know, in a court, uh, let's say, so, like a racketeering case, so let's, so does a person have the right to go to secular court under those circumstances? I had a case once like this, where uh, somebody had suffered, their, their child drove a bicycle in a bungalow colony, and, or maybe it was a camp, they fell in a camp, and they fell into a pit, and um, like a big pothole that wasn't taken care of by the owner of the camp, and they wanted to sue the owner of the camp for damages that occurred to their son. You know, thank God they weren't, it wasn't fatal damages, but for whatever damages occurred, they wanted to sue in a um, in a court of um, uh, in a secular court. And uh, the uh, and the owner uh, of the of the camp said, uh, "I want to go to Besdin. This is a violation of the Yisra Kos." person has no right to take me to secular court. So the person said, well, according to the shach, this is what the the the, um, the, the, tovea, the plaintiff had a towing, had a rabbinic advocate. Rabbinic advocates are hired to make creative arguments. So he made a creative argument. He said, well, if you look in the shach, in Simenafa, Choshemishbat, he says that niske bor ve'esh are not considered to be shchiach, that the damages of uh, bor, of like a person digs a pit, they have a pothole, so that's not considered to be shchiach, not considered to be kavs, it doesn't fall under shlikusayu, and therefore, since it's not under shlikusayu, it's not within the uh, ambit of the jurisdiction of Bezdin, we have a right to go to secular court. So I said to the Torah, that's a really clever and creative argument, but it's against the Sefer Atrumos, it's quoted by the Beis Yosef in Simen Chobav, um, where the Beis Yosef says, that even if I have a case that doesn't fall under Shlik Usayu, you still are not allowed to go to secular court. You go in front of the Bezdin. The Bezdin feels that it's a jurisdictional mandate. Bezman Azed doesn't cover it, so it may decide we're not going to award damages altogether. Or we'll say, we'll make a pshara that will require a payment of something that's not the strict letter of the law because we don't have strict jurisdiction, but just you know some sort of a, a penalty or some sort of a settlement uh, that will help to resolve the case in a fashion of shalom, or this is quoted from the uh, the smak. Uh, the Bezdin also has the authority if it feels that the only fair result uh, uh, will occur if the case is actually prosecuted in front of a secular court that will be able to carry out you know damages more in accordance to what the strict damages would have been according to uh, Torah law, and that that's warranted under the circumstances. Then the Bezdin can make the determination to refer it to secular court, but it all has to come from the Bezdin. The first. Instance 
instance, it has to be litigated in front of the Bezdin. In most cases, the Bezdin will say, we can handle it. And if it doesn't fall in the Shlikos Sayo, so we'll figure out, you know, how to make an appropriate Pshara within our Pshara making authority. Bezdin has the authority to um, impose, that's usually what we say to parties nowadays, that uh, they should accept the Bezdin jurisdiction in terms of making a Pshara, in terms of imposing some sort of a settlement. Uh, and certainly these types of cases, which are not subject at all to strict in, so that's the only alternative of what uh, Bezdin would be obligated to do according to Torah law, and that's how the case would have to be handled. Another important ramification of the prohibition, they'll take another question, is uh, that it would be usher, it would be prohibited to serve as a lawyer. This question comes up a lot. I get questions, uh, I get shyless from, from lawyers. A lawyer is not allowed to represent one Jewish party um, litigating against another Jewish party in court. The Rabbi Yosef writes, he says that if the lawyer is representing a defendant in a case, meaning the person who was sued, and they were sued in secular court, so then they're allowed to go to civil court because they're not the ones who committed the prohibition. It was the one who sued them who committed the prohibition. They don't have braver. They have no choice. They have to go in order to save their skin. But to represent a plaintiff in an action where the plaintiff will be ta- who's Jewish, we're taking another Jewish litigant to civil court. So strictly speaking, that is prohibited. There's a question. It's prohibited based on Lifnaiver because you are facilitating an Avera of this person bringing an action in civil court. There are all kinds of questions. Does Lifnaiver apply if the person could have gotten a different lawyer and therefore it's Chareb Dinara, it's not Treyab Dinara, then it's still Durabana. You're not allowed to facilitate an Avera even if the person could have committed it otherwise. So even if it's not Lifnaiver, it would be Messiah. So then it's a question that some find the Tehrim. Well, according to the Shach, there's no Issa Durabana and Messiah, which is based on our obligation, La Frisho Mi Isura, that our obligation to separate another Yid, another Jew. From, from sin, so maybe if this Jew doesn't care about committing sins because he commits sins left and right, that's his M.O., he's just not uh, observant in any way, um, so he's a person's a mumar, so in the shock says that the Yisra doesn't apply to a mumar, so there are heterim that people come up with, but when lawyers ask me, I say, you know, fundamentally we're talking about the type of Isser, which is mecharif and megadev, where it's like blaspheming the name of Hashem, so it's a double muse to be involved in this type of activity to represent somebody in the commission of the Yisr, even if you can get away, uh, if you can get out of all of the technical Yisurim, if it's something that, you know, could be avoided, then, you know, one should really avoid it and one should really try to teach the individual about how it's the wrong thing to do and it's better to go in front of an arbitrator, even if the person refuses to go to a bez, it's better to go in front of an arbitrator who's not bound by secular law and will just judge the case according to general principles of equity and fairness than to have the case brought in front of, uh, of secular court. Um, okay, yes, your question. So, if, if there's, what cases, again, what cases are, are out of the realm of, of people's side, the uncommon cases, so, so to speak? Right, uncommon cases. We say even cases of chabalos, where you have one person who beats another person up. So that's not considered to be a normal type of case. That's not considered to be a, a common type of case. But again, it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether it really falls under the ambit of Shlich or not. I'm just giving that as an example of the scope of the Yisra Akos. One is obligated to go in front of the Bezdin anyway, and then Bezdin will determine the best and most appropriate way uh, to handle the case under all of the circumstances. Well, uh, Rabbi said they would, they would try to make a shorah. 
Well, the, the, the best thing could impose a show in such a case. In other words, the best thing so can it, say so that you're obligated, obligated to obligated. you're obligated to do whatever it takes in order to appease the other person. If the yeah, best feels but that but that's the, appropriate, the yes, yes, the best thing, the best thing, and the, the rush talks about this in a number of contexts as well. When the only type of decision that the best thing is able to issue is one pshara, the best thing can impose a pshara upon the parties. Then they're acting as smoking even if they're not. Uh, no, because uh, the, the idea of the smuchin is that they simply don't, um, uh, they, they, they don't paskin the case according to the strict letter of the law. That would be what would be off limits in terms of shlik But to otherwise deal with the case, you're looking seminal for koshimish, but to otherwise deal with the case in other creative ways is still permissible from the best. And even if there is not a shlik they could still deal with the case in other, in other ways. Uh, in order to create a just result. So out of this a whole framework came the whole discussion about setting up a court system within Eretz Yisrael when the Medina was established in 1948 or whatever, when uh, they you know, had to have uh, their court system in place. So there was a big debate at the time. Um, the rabbinic authorities felt that this is a wonderful you know, opportunity to bring back to the Haxir Tereshel, the Torah Leoshina, uh, to uh, bring back the crown and glory of Torah and have all of uh, the courts basically set up as Bati Din that follow the rule of Torah. But instead, they established essentially within Israel itself a secular court system based on British law, based on Ottoman law, based on Roman law, based on all kinds of different uh, systems of law other than Torah law. And the question was whether this was a legitimate enterprise. The Chazon Ish wrote that this is certainly not a legitimate enterprise. This is the Chazon Ish in Sanhedrin, um, where he has this as Parak Tesvav, as Sifkat and Dalid. In his notes on Sanhedrin, he says that even if everybody would get together and they would all agree that they're going to accept the foreign legal system, this is still a violation of um, our, our cause. Now, he didn't frame it. He says, look, we're not dealing with non-Jews. We're dealing with Jews. That's what some of the proponents were arguing. They said, hey, these are Jews who are putting, who are going to be sitting as the judges. So how can you call it our cause? He said, well, Lifnayim has two different aspects to the prohibition. There's Lifnayim lo Akum, and there's Lifnayim lo Yotos, so that you also can deliberately put the case when you have qualified Dayanim, you're going to have people who are not qualified Dayanim, people who are going to uh, be applying secular rules, so that would be prohibited, particularly if you do it in a fashion, you know, normally you can accept upon yourself three shepherds who don't know anything. That's considered to be a tanai. That's not a violation of a ritual prohibition like going to civil court, you know, who the judges are going to be. But the Chazanish seems to be saying, says, if you're going to be accepting upon yourself, achukim, uh, on, the, on different laws, there's a different legal system than the Torah, um, and then that's considered to be a chil of the Torah, and he writes explicitly, In other words, this is a violation of the aspect of the prohibition, which is based, as the Rambam writes, on haramas yad neged Torah's Moshe Rabbeinu. That it's like you're lifting your hand against the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, and uh, that is uh, considered to be uh, a slap in the face um, uh, to the uh, divine authority of uh, the Torah and something which is certainly in the context of our own self-standing governmental structures uh, would be a giant prohibition. So uh, um, Ritzvi Pesach Frank, the Chazunish, 
Rav Herzog, Rav Yosef, many, many gedolim came out extremely strongly against the establishment of a secular court system within Eretz Yisrael itself. You know, Rav Yecheskel Sarna made the comment that at least, as you, meant, as you alluded to earlier, at least when it comes to other uh, legal systems in other countries of the world, so they have the right to establish a legal system, at least you know, for, the, um, for the residents of the land that they're supposed to establish dinim. But in Eretz Yisrael itself, the, legal, the only legitimate legal system when you have Jews who are running the government is a system of abate din. That's so why Al-Yashiv was asked by his son-in-law, Yitzchak Silverstein, if you have a case, normally speaking, we say that if a Bezdin is not able to exercise jurisdiction, so then they can refer the case to secular court. Do you say that in Eretz Yisrael, where there's no legitimacy whatsoever to the secular courts? So um, it was a good question. But Al-Yashiv said that if it's in the context of them being assigned to perform a task by the Bezdin, so in such a case it doesn't matter because they're merely serving as the arm and the agent of the Bezdin. But otherwise, it was such a strong concern that based on this comment from Yechaz Kosan, of Zilbushtin actually you know, asked the question. So let me go into that with our remaining time, because uh, we don't have so much remaining time, but with the remaining time, let me talk about some of, we've touched upon it, well, I want to talk about some of the remaining, um, some of the exceptions to the rule. When is it permissible to be in the civil court? Some of it we touched upon. We're going to clarify, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit right now. Uh, so, uh, so one, uh, so one case is where, uh, for example, you have a uh, a plaintiff, obviously who takes the defendant to secular court, the defendant is allowed to be in secular court. However, the post can point out that even though the defendant is allowed to defend himself in secular court, it might be in the defendant's interest for him or for her to register a claim right away in Bezin to say, I don't want to be in secular court because the Marasham writes that if a defendant is in secular court, uh, even though they were taken to secular court and they don't do anything to protest being in secular court for a long period of time, they participate in motion practice, they participate in court proceedings and so forth, so then that's considered already, even though it was legitimate for them to be there, it's considered to be a Kabbalah on their part that they're accepting upon themselves the jurisdiction so that if they decide when they see that things are not going in their favor later on, that they want to switch over to Bezdin, we would say, no, we're not allowing you to switch over to Bezdin at this point because you have already accepted upon yourself the authority of the civil court by not complaining about it right away. They also talk about it in terms of the ability of the defendant to recover the expenses of going to secular court because generally speaking, the defendant can recover his or her expenses if the plaintiff illegitimately takes the defendant to secular court. But if the defendant doesn't go to Bezdin to complain about it right away or to send the summons, I want to be in Bezdin instead of secular court, they can lose their right to recover expenses as well. So the post can talk about, well, it's discussed in Imre Bina, others discuss all of these um, potential ramifications. So it is mutter, but nonetheless, there would be a forfeiture of certain rights if the defendant doesn't complain about being in secular court and try to remove it to Bezdin uh, right away, even if they may not, strictly speaking, uh, be obligated to do so. Yes? Um, with regards to the basic thing, the, 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 
Right, with respect to them, if, if they would be in front of Besden, would they be able to, if they're able to transmit to Besden, do they, are they able to recover their costs or not? So, right, from, these, from the court proceeding, from being taken to civil court. Normally, they right. would have the right to, to recover their hotzos. Right. The defendant normally has the right to, to recover his or her costs for having to go to civil, civil court, but only if they petition the Besden, then the Besden would, would award those costs. Um, another question is, so we said already a couple of times that if the, um, let's say that um, a plaintiff uh, wants to bring a case to Besden, the defendant refuses to come to Besden. This, this is a Gemara in, uh, in Baba Kama. The Gemara in Baba Kama indicates that if a defendant refuses to go to, uh, to Besden, um, so then uh, they can, uh, then the plaintiff can pursue the case in civil court. This is Gemara Baba Kama Tzadi Beis Tzadi Beis. How do people know? If you call somebody and they don't answer, then throw the book at them or throw the wall at them. Take a big wall and throw it at them. So the Gemara gives a source as to how we know a pasuk as to how we know this rule. So the Rosh quotes of Rapaltaigon as saying you can't take this Gemara literally. It doesn't mean you call someone they don't answer, so you throw a wall at them. That's just like uh, we, we don't operate that way. There must be something more sublime going on over here. So Rapaltaigon explains what this Gemara is talking about as you summon somebody to Bez and they refuse to come to Bezdin. So then you can throw the wall at them, meaning that you recover what you need to through whatever means are necessary, even through taking them to secular court. Under those circumstances, you can take them to secular court. So the question is, when we give you the right to take them to secular court, so does, it, is, does the best and first have to determine uh, that the claim the plaintiff has is a claim that would be viable according to Din Torah? Or do we say, no, that once the defendant refuses to go, even if the plaintiff is going to recover more than they would otherwise have recovered in a dinto or in Bezdin, they're still allowed to recover that amount. So the Nesivas of Mishpat says, no, the plaintiff can only recover what the Bezdin would have awarded, and the Yorach HaShulchan has a whole procedure. The plaintiff appears before the Bezdin, even though the Bezdin can't fully evaluate the claim because the defendant's not there to present their side. The plaintiff, the Bezdin's able to determine more or less whether there is some sort of a colorable, actionable claim that could be pursued and if they think so, so then they give the authority, they give the right to the plaintiff to pursue the case in secular court, but otherwise not. So the Imre Bina and the Klei Chemda and others point out the practice doesn't seem to be this way. The practice seems to be that whenever a defendant refuses to go to secular court, then we give Rishus. Even the Bati Din will give Rishus carte blanche to the plaintiff to pursue whatever claims they have in civil court, even if they might have claims that would not have been um, uh, that would not have been actionable in Besden, even if they have claims that would not have been recovered to the same degree in Besden, they don't uh, check uh, the amount of the claim or the viability of the claim. They just say to the plaintiff, "You have the right to go." So if Chaim Kohn, so Diane the Broy in the Broyer's community, so he wrote an article about this in which he tries to justify the or explain the common practice of Abate Din in um, in this regard, uh, and uh, and he says that. Really, there are two different sources that are brought down in the postgame as to the heter uh, for uh, sending somebody to the secular legal authorities. One is this Gemara and Babakama, and the other is uh, the Mishnah that we quoted earlier at the end of Gitin, where the Bezdin issued a psak 
And then the civil court says, well, They say, do what the rabbinical courts told you to do. So if I'm just simply following the source of the Mishnah and Gittin, which is the one that's quoted by the Sefer Balatrumos, for example, then it would stand to reason that the civil court is only given authority to carry out that which the Bezdin itself would have decided. But if the source is the Gemara and Babakama, uh, which simply says that somebody refuses to go to bed, then we throw the book at them, like Rapalto would go and learns from that source, so then it's more of a knas. Then it's not so much that the civil court is necessarily simply serving as the agent of the Bezdin, but the civil court, we're authorizing the plaintiff to go to the civil court as a knas, as a penalty that we are imposing upon the defendant for refusing to go to Bezdin. And if it's a knas, so then it stands to reason that we would impose the knas, after all, it is a penalty, uh, after all even further than the degree than the person might otherwise have been able to recover uh, damages uh, in the Bezdin itself. Since we're imposing a knas upon the defendant, part of the knas is that whatever the civil court is going to rule, even if it is a larger amount than that which the Bezdin um, would have ruled, uh, is still going to be subject to that knas, to that penalty that they are uh, going to um, to have to pay. Uh, and as we uh, as we mentioned, Obviously, in terms of the simple application of the Mishnah and Gittin, of carrying out a psak of the Bezdin, the preponderance of the post can say uh, that in this particular case, um, for sure, it's legitimate to go to secular court because you're simply using the secular court as the police mechanism for enforcing the decision of the Bezdin. That's what the Chassam Sofer and Chosh Mishpat Simen Gimel really explains as uh, the uh, fundamental um, uh, 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 explanation for heter arkos, uh, for permission to go to a uh, secular court altogether. As we mentioned, it's a ritual prohibition. How could it ever be permitted? So the Sam Sofer explains uh, that um, it, when we permit it, we're permitting the secular court under these types of circumstances. One party refuses to go to Besden, so we allow the other party to go to secular court. We're permitting them to act as an agent for the Besden. Uh, as an entity which is being authorized to, by the Bezdin to carry out justice in this case, even if it's in the form of the Knas, but they're serving as an agent for the Bezdin, so therefore, once they're an agent, it's no longer viewed as an Israel coast. The Klechemda has a slightly different explanation. If you look at his commentary at the beginning of Parashas Mishpatim, where he explains that well, whenever you have a situation where the Bezdin simply doesn't have the Koach because the, the parties, you know, one party's not giving them the Koach, to be able to discharge their authority. So then going to the secular court is sort of a form of of a person, you know, taking, that's also sugyim babakama, taking the law into their hands. Um, so even though the Truma Sadeshin says in general, going to secular court as a manifestation of that's considered to be a repulsive thing to do, but it's not repulsive under the circumstances where that's the only way where the person would be able to achieve a remedy and the Bezdin is simply not able to, um, to handle uh, the case under those, uh, under those circumstances. There's also the question of Ikulim. People sometimes come to the Bezdin and they want an injunction. You'll have you know, somebody who has a claim 
uh, that uh, their partner is stealing all the proceeds of the partnership, for example, something like that, and they want an equal, they want the Bezdin to issue an injunction freezing the assets of the partnership, because they say that by the time that they'll be able to bring the case to Bezdin, it might take two months from when they originally petitioned for the case to be bought, maybe this partner who they're accusing of siphoning away all the assets will take all the, uh, the, the rest of the assets as well. So therefore, they say, can you issue an injunction, like a restraining order on the party? The problem with restraining orders in general is that a restraining order really only is effective if you have the power and jurisdiction to issue the restraining order. If the parties have not already signed an arbitration agreement to come in front of the best, then it's not going to mean much for the Besden to issue a restraining order. And all that's going to happen is that the other party to the dispute is going to say, ah, oh, the Besden has already decided the case in favor of the party that petitioned the Besden. They've already decided that I'm wrong and that's why they're restraining all the assets of the partnership. That's why they are issuing an injunction against me. So it's just going to prejudice the party against coming to Besden, certainly against coming to this Besden in the first place. So I think that's the reason why Rav Moshe, uh, Feinstein and others say uh, that as far as filing a preliminary injunction, it makes more sense to go to court than to go to Besden. That's not considered to be a litigation per se. A person simply files a, a TRO, a temporary restraining order, in order to keep things at status quo, to keep assets frozen and things of that variety. So the Besden, if the parties haven't already signed an arbitration agreement, can't do that because they don't have jurisdiction. Um, a court is able to do it because they do have jurisdiction. It's not, says with Moshe, a violation of our calls because it's just keeping things in place until the case actually can be litigated. But what is critical, what's very, very important is that uh, the, the party that files uh, the injunction should make it abundantly clear in their filing papers uh, that uh, they are planning to litigate any substantive aspects of the dispute between themselves and the other party in front of a rabbinical court, that this is their desire, that they don't want anything substantive decided by the secular court. They just want to put the injunction, they want to put uh, the uh, restraining order, uh, the freeze on assets in place, uh, but, but uh, they, they, as far as the actual litigation, what would otherwise come under the uh, rubric of Isser Arkos, that will only take place in Besdin. So this has to be very carefully navigated. The Shabbat Mosner and the Shevet Alevi also talks about injunctions and says, well, really one needs the permission of Besdin, but I think he's talking and he himself acknowledges that he's essentially talking about a situation where Besdin has the authority to begin with. So Besdin has the authority to, in other words, where Besdin has jurisdiction over the parties. So then it's appropriate to go to Besdin to ask Besdin, you have jurisdiction you decide whether an injunction is appropriate or not, even if it's appropriate to go to court to get the injunction. But if Besden doesn't have the authority, it's much more def- difficult, especially uh, in terms of an ex parte application where it might look like the Besden is being prejudicial for the Besden to issue uh, an order of injunctive relief, and particularly since it's not going to be effective or enforceable anyway. The main icker is that um, uh, when we speak about an issa or cost, there's an implication. The implication of the prohibition of secular courts is that we have to have 
viable batzidin, viable rabbinical courts in place. Um, that can carry out their responsibilities with integrity uh, and with competence and with uh, professionalism. Uh, And uh, this is something which uh, I've been involved in personally for the last number of years. It's why we have a Yadin Yadin Kolel. It's something that we always have to strive to improve in order to be Mekadesh Shem Shemayim by demonstrating to people that our system of justice really is the superior system of justice in the law in the terms of the way we conduct ourselves, in terms of the way we operate, in terms of the way that we always have an awareness of Elohim Nitzvah, that the divine presence resides upon the Dayanim, and we have to make sure to keep people out of the foreign systems of law um, in order to advance um, uh, the beauty and the grandeur of our own uh, Torah system of law and way of life. May we all merit to see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Yeshayahu of Shiva Shavtai Kavar Rishonah V'yotzai Akivat Chilu B'mheir Rabbi Amenu Amen.